New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for taking the time to be here in this space right now. And can I uh, reaffirm uh, Phil's request to you to engage in what I'm going to say. If you've got some questions or comments, if you've got some observations, if you've got something that you might want clarification on, uh, then please uh, make sure that you engage in the chat. I'm aware that the subject that I'm going to talk about is sensitive and difficult for many of us. And I say us because I include myself in that number. Grief and sorrow can be very difficult to navigate. For some, it is impossible. So before I say anything else, if you are walking through grief right now, if you are living with recent or past losses from many years ago, and you're getting some help from a counsellor or from a doctor or from a therapy group, then please, please, please continue to take advantage of that and get all the help and the support that you need. If you're in a church and you're being supported by a bereavement group or by your pastor or a small group leader or someone else, then I am deeply thankful to God for them too. And I, I pray that, that you will find a way through all of your sorrow and your loss and that you'll take the advice and the help and the support that is being offered to you by different uh, people. Grief is all-consuming. It can be something that dominates our thinking from the moment we get up until the moment we go to bed at night. I think that in my own life, I have lived with it for many more decades than I thought. My whole pastoral ministry has been marked by it. Most pastors are in one way or another. Walking with people through the darkest and the hardest moments of their lives is one of the greatest privileges of pastoral ministry, but it's also one of the greatest responsibilities. And in those moments, one must remember, I think, always that the name given to Christ, one of the names given to Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. I don't think necessarily that the midst of grief and loss is a time to be bombastic or aggressive or dominating or controlling of people who are walking with it. Instead, it's a time to remind them that the God that can comfort them is right beside them that the God who comes near has come near in his son and offers them a hand of friendship and support and compassion and will carry them through if they will let him. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Good Grief, Living with Sorrow and Loss, upon which this seminar is based. And it was written out of my own experiences of sadness and loss without going into all of the details. Uh, in 2002, my father dropped dead and it was a, a catastrophic event in my life. My wife and I lost some children, two children in early pregnancy and we still live with the pain and the uncertainty of that in our own lives. Then between 2014 and 2016, in just an 18 month period, um, eight people in my close circle died, seven of them family members, three of them to suicide, 
and two in traumatic circumstances. And I buried them all. And those journeys, those experiences caused me to pause and reflect on what I believe about grief and about sorrow and about sadness and about God's presence in the midst of it all. Of course, I've also been pastoring for almost 32 or 33 years now and have walked with many people through every kind of loss or sadness that you could imagine from national disasters, catastrophes and terrorist attacks to sudden death, to suicide, to slow prolonged death, to dementia and a, a hundred other variants. Death and sorrow are part of life. So as we think about it and reflect together today on it, I think my prayer is that whatever brings you to this seminar, you will be aware of God's grace and that this will be a safe place for you to think, to explore, perhaps to jot down some ideas and thoughts, to ask questions if you need to, but above all, to be reminded of God's comfort and God's presence and God's nearness to you. I want to look at four fundamental questions very briefly in the next 25 or 30 minutes. And then Phil will come back and we will deal with some questions, comments and observations. Firstly, I want to think with you about whether or not good grief is possible. Is there a way that we can navigate, navigate the, the journey of grief healthily in a way that will not destroy us? Secondly, I want to think with you briefly about what we do when we have no answers. Where do we go? How do we deal with the uncertainty of it all, the sorrow of it all, the pain of it all? Thirdly, I want to ask the question, what happens next? How do you step into the future when your future has been redefined? When the future that you expected, perhaps the future that you longed for, has been taken away from you. And lastly, I want to think about hope. How does hope survive sorrow and loss? How does it survive sadness? So to the first question for a few moments. Is good grief possible? I want to read two versions, two, two small passages of scripture to you. The first is from Job chapter 16, verse 16. And the second is from Psalm 23, verse 4. The second reading will be very familiar with, to you. The first one may not be quite so familiar. Job, who has lost everything, who has seen his life decimated, comments like this in Job chapter 16, verse 16. My face is red with weeping and deep darkness is on my eyelids. In Psalm 23, verse 4, David, reflecting on uncertainty and sorrow and loss, says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, many of the versions of the Bible that you read would say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. 
Pain comes in many forms and in many stages in our lives. Grief and uncertainty can strike us at the most unexpected of moments, whether that be the death of a sibling, a partner, a parent, a friend, whether it be sudden or expected. When it strikes, it strikes hard. C.S. Lewis, in his remarkable um, confessional struggle on grief, called a grief observed, said that he never knew grief felt so much like being suffocated or being drunk. Grief can consume us. It can grab us and take hold of us. And yet, Jesus promised his followers that when we mourned, he would comfort us. He certainly said it on more than one occasion. But on the occasion that I want to reflect with you for a moment on, it's at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, where he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Some people think the passage in Luke chapter 6 is a different event. Some think it's the same event recorded differently, but it's sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain. And in Luke chapter 6, verse 21, Jesus' instruction and promise is even briefer, even sharper, even clearer. He says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. At the beginning of his ministry, when he picked up the scroll in Nazareth, he read from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. God's comfort to his people is a promise to bring strength. It's a promise to bring hope. It's a promise to bring courage. So yes, is good grief possible? It is. But it requires honesty. It requires vulnerability. And it often requires a change in our perspectives on our circumstances, on our futures, and on what has happened to us. The whole of the New Testament picks up this idea of the possibility of good grief, of a comfort that will hold us and sustain us. Perhaps most clearly in Paul's words to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers and sisters about those who have died so that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. Here's my challenge. Grief and pain and sorrow are completely explicable if you don't believe in God. But for those of us that are Christians, the journey is even harder in one sense because we believe in God. And if we believe in a God who is good, then grief becomes difficult to navigate. If we believe in a God who is powerful, grief is hard to navigate. If we believe in a God who is good, 
and powerful, then it is the most challenging thing. And at the heart of Christian orthodoxy is the belief that God is both good and powerful. So at the beginning of this journey of exploring grief, I want to suggest to you that we need to be free to ask the questions that bubble up in our hearts. Why did this happen? Where were you? How am I supposed to rebuild my life now? These are not indelicate questions. And they're not rude questions. There is a fundamental difference between indicting God and asking him questions. And many people who find themselves in grief can end up being angry at God. I was. In the losses that I have gone through, there have been occasions when I have said to God, why did you let this happen? I'm not going to go down the rabbit warren of his sovereignty and his permissive will. We would be here all day with that. But in the end, if we believe in a God that is good and a God that is all-powerful, then we have to navigate the journey that we find ourselves on because he could have changed it if he'd wanted and he could have removed it if he had chosen and he could make it easier if he decided that was the case. But a good and all-powerful God who is present with us allows us to go through grief and invites us to journey into it and out of it with him. There's no need for a defense of grief and sorrow if we don't believe in this kind of God. Pain, grief, loss, hurt, these are harder for the person of faith. They're harder for you and I to navigate. In one of the family funerals that I took, there were hundreds of people who were angry at what had happened. And my first words in my eulogy were this, I know many of you have profound and deep questions, but none of you have more profound or deeper questions than I do. I think for many of us, just being given permission to be honest about our struggles is the beginning of a journey that is healthier and more helpful than having to lock those struggles away, having to pretend that they are not there. And yet, in the verses that I read to you at the beginning of our time together, um, you may not have noticed, but they are connected. Job chapter 16, verse 16 says, um, deep darkness is on my eyelids. And Psalm 23, verse 4 says, when I pass through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. In Hebrew, the word that is used or the phrase that is used in both is the same. It is the phrase sal mavet. And it's almost impossible to translate. It's a rare and complicated phrase. But what we find is David confessing that even when I am in a darkness that I cannot understand, even when I'm in a place that doesn't seem explicable, you are there. The same phrase is what Job uses to describe the deep heaviness that causes him to break his heart and weep. Deep darkness is on my eyelids. So it could be translated like this for Job. The valley of the shadow of death causes me to break my heart and weighs upon my eyes. What's required for the journey of grief to be healthier is honesty, is vulnerability, is the willingness to say to God, I can't make this without you and I don't understand everything that I'm going through. Not long after 
one of my family funerals. I sat in my study in Buckinghamshire, surrounded by an awful lot of books. I'm a, a book lover. The sun was coming through the window. It was about 5.30 in the morning, and it's my habit on a Sunday morning to just spend time on my knees simply before God, listening for his voice and being still before him. It was the first time that I was going to preach after another family loss. And for a brief moment, kneeling in my study, I thought about giving it all up. I thought, I can't do this. And I looked around all the books in my study and I said to the Lord, I've read all of these and they're not going to carry me through these days and this challenge. And immediately I was reminded of a verse in the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus was abandoned by many of those that were following him because he started to talk about the hardship of the cross and struggle and persecution. And he turned to his disciples and he said, will you leave me too? And Peter responded to him and said, to whom else could we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. And kneeling in my study that morning, I made a choice, an intellectual, cerebral, spiritual, and emotional choice. I said to God, to whom else can I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. So I'm not going anywhere. Unless you help me, I'll not make it. But you've promised to help me. And a journey began of exploring grief through different lenses. The sadness of it becomes a space where I can discover something about God, about his comfort, about his presence, about his hope. The metaphors that are used in the Bible began to recast for me an imagination around grief and sorrow that fundamentally developed a theology of grief. So whereas darkness is often associated for us with loss, with fear, with isolation, and with loneliness, I began to discover that within the context of Scripture, darkness is also a place of encounter. It's a place where mystery becomes meaningful. It's a place where we have to look differently to see something. And the darkness of sorrow did that. For example, reflect this week on the reality that the creation doesn't begin with a burst and wonder of light. The creation begins with God and darkness. The Genesis narrative tells us that the creation begins with darkness. It's out of the uncertainty, out of the void, out of the chasm that God reveals himself. And certainly for me, my journey through grief and loss has been one in which the darkness has become a place of encounter, a place I no longer fear, a place that unsettles me, a, a sense that makes me feel as if I am not certain about anything, but nevertheless, a place of hope. And what of valleys? Another metaphor contained within Scripture, grief is a valley. But Psalm 84 tells us that passing through the valley of Baca, we can find a stream or a well or a spring of living water. When we pass through the valley of the shadow, God is with us. The valley of dry bones, 
becomes a valley that is enlivened and vivified by God's presence and God's grace. And in the valley, and only in the valley within the context of the Old Testament, a flower grows, the lily of the valley. It doesn't grow on the mountaintop. It doesn't grow on the side of the mountain. It doesn't grow on the street. It doesn't grow in the full sunlight of a garden. It grows in the valley. Good grief is possible, but only when we begin to realize that we can encounter God in the darkness, in the mystery, in the sorrow, and in the struggle in a way that we cannot encounter him anywhere else. I invite you to think about that, to reflect on those aspects of grief that for you might be suffocating, but can become places and moments where you can see God more clearly. There's an old Celtic prayer that says this, walk slowly with grief and pause often. It does not help you to rush. It is not good for you and it is not good for others. Walk slowly with grief and pause often. Unfinished conversations can be finished in Christ. Walk slowly with grief and pause often. Perhaps the metaphor of light and darkness, of joy and sorrow, of valley and mountain. Perhaps the reminder that in the chaos there can be stillness. Perhaps the reminder of God's presence amidst the mystery can help us to begin to navigate this journey differently. But only, only if we are allowed to ask honest questions. Only if we can bring our uncertainties to God. And that brings me to my second question. What do we do if we have no answers? A theology or a churchmanship or a spirituality or a psychology that tells you that you must bottle those questions up will hurt you and harm you in the long run. Unresolved grief can lead to post-traumatic stress disorder, to anxiety, to irritability, to sleeplessness, to weight gain or weight loss, to um, ulcers, to all kinds of challenges in our physicality and in our mental health. But God never invites us to bottle up our questions. He never invites us to pretend that they do not exist. I sit within the evangelical wing of the church, and I often think that we have boxed things too much that if we were writing the Psalms, we wouldn't be quite so honest. If you and I were writing Psalm 22, some of us would never dream of saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because somehow we would understand such a confession to be an admission of defeat. And I think one of the challenges that we must face as we navigate the grief journey ourselves is that a, a theology of grief is not a theology of defeat. A theology of death is not a theology of defeat. A theology of despair is not a theology of defeat. Lament does not mean that you are not worshipping. Instead, God invites us to bring our questions to him. But we must always be willing to listen to his answers. One of the most powerful examples of this in the grief cycle is the journey of Mary and Martha when their brother Lazarus died. Both sisters in John 11 bring profound questions and challenges to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother 
would not have died. One of them says, but still I know you can do something. The other just collapses at his feet. Your questions don't go away because you haven't articulated them. But there does come a point when we must make a choice to leave them at the feet of Jesus. After my dad died in 2002, I was plunged into the, a period of chaos. Every morning I would arise and cry out to God, why? I don't think there was a 10 minute period in a day for about six months where I didn't say why, 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 why? And like C.S. Lewis's experience after his wife died, God said nothing in return. I read his word, it felt hard and hollow. I listened for his spirit and felt dry and barren. I didn't give up believing in God. If I had, I would have stopped preaching. I didn't give up my faith in God. I was just arguing with him and angry with him. Like a child that comes to their parent, angry at the choices that the parent has made and beats on their chest. I was beating on God's chest. And then there was a moment, about six months after my dad died, where I felt that God's spirit prompted me to realize something very simple and very profound. That one day, God would answer every question that I had ever had. And on the day that he answered the question, the question itself would no longer matter. And I had a choice to make. I could either trust God amidst the questions and leave them with him. Or I could keep fighting, keep running down rabbit warrens. And I made a conscious choice to stop fighting. The child that was beating his arms against his father's chest, me, ran out of energy. And I realized that in the moment that I dropped my arms down, in the moment that I let my guard down, my father was able to embrace me again. And comfort began slowly to return to my life. Our questions are okay. It's okay to bring them to God. It's okay to leave them there. It's okay for God not to answer them. But the safest place to leave our queries is in the hands of God. A word of warning, however, if you are going through recent trauma, be kind to yourself. Don't rush at these things. It may be too raw. We can minister out of our scars, but we cannot minister out of our wounds because our wounds are too recent. Allow God in his grace and in his mercy to begin to comfort you. Leave your questions at his feet and listen for his answers. One of the great challenges that I have experienced in my grief journey is that some of God's answers have been deeply uncomfortable. They've been deeply challenging. They've unsettled me. Let me give you an example. Not long after my mum died in 2016, I said to God in prayer one morning, please, Lord, 
don't let me have to bury somebody else that is in my family. I can't do it. I can't stand at the graveside of another person that I have loved. I don't think I'll be able to cope. And in my prayer journal, I began to write. And I sensed that the Spirit of God whispered something into my soul, which is not what I expected. God said to me, you will never bury your best friend because he has died and been buried and risen again. You will never have to say goodbye to your best friend. But you have allowed your family, your friends, your relationships to become more important to you than me. When you begin to reprioritize those things, you will discover that you can bury anyone because you will never bury your best friend. That was not easy to hear, but it was true. I'd fallen into the trap of allowing my family, allowing my children, allowing my wife, allowing those that were closest to me to be idols. And therefore, the thought of living without them became almost a religious thought. And honestly, I think at that point, if you had said to me, choose God or choose your family surviving, I would have chosen my family surviving. But God began to work in me through those questions and those answers. And over a space of months, he reorientated my heart and my life. And he continues to do that. When you ask honest questions of God, he may some, say some challenging things back, but he will never say them to harm you. You may have to face a sense of entitlement. You may have to face a sense of anger, of guilt, of wishing that you had done things differently. You may have to face a sense of feeling too dependent on a person. As God confronts you with those things, he's not doing so to hurt you. He's doing so to heal you, to help you to realize that actually the scripture is true. He is our sufficiency and all that we need is in him. And that brings me to my third question. What happens next? How do we live with loss? There's an old phrase, some of you have probably heard it. People talk about death being an unwelcome visitor or an unexpected guest. It's not that. Death is a squatter that breaks into our house. And we were not made for death. We were made for life. That's why we mitigate against it so strongly. But if we are to navigate into another chapter, we have to break the myth that we get over loss. You'll never get over it. I will never get over it. I'll never get over losing my parents in the way that I did. I'll never get over losing my loved ones to suicide. In my head and in my heart, there is always room for them. There's always a space at my table. There's always an empty chair. But I don't think I'm supposed to get over it. I think the idea that we get over it somehow becomes associated with we'll forget them. I'm not supposed to get over loss. I'm supposed to reimagine my life in a season that I didn't expect to walk into a future that I had not planned. A future that very often 
has felt like a plan B future. But actually in God's economy, it isn't a plan B. If I'm to live with my loss, then I must be allowed to name it. I must be allowed to acknowledge that it has changed me. Grief does not destroy us. Grief can refine us if we let it. Grief doesn't have to define us, but it can refine us. Being honest about your grief, being honest about your fears, being honest about your uncertainties, beginning to think about what life looks like now with a new season that you didn't expect, gives you the space to begin to reimagine who you are and how you view the world and what it looks like and feels like and what it might sound like. In my journey through grief, I now see the world differently. It's so hard to explain to you, but I hear music more deeply. I see color more vibrantly. I, I read scripture more slowly. I listen to people more closely. I understand God less now than I have ever understood him. But I love him more than I have ever loved him. I'm more dependent upon him than I have ever been. And I've learned that grief has refined me. But in order to step into the future that I didn't expect, I have to be allowed to re-scope it, to begin to imagine it differently, to see through a different lens, which is what we're told happens to us when we come to faith in Christ in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. But hope is possible. That brings me to my last question. Joy is possible. I am not betraying my loved ones when I smile. I am honoring them. I'm not abandoning my deep sense of loss when I laugh. I am simply living. The first question I asked you was what does God, is good grief possible? The second was, what do you do when you have no answers? The third is, what do you do? How do you live with loss? What comes next? The last is, can hope survive? I think hope in Christ is indestructible. And I think we are called through the Lazarus story, particularly, to remember that hope has a heartbeat that Lazarus's resurrection story assures us of our resurrection and reminds us that we may well have to walk through death. But death is a liar. Death is a deceiver. Death wanted to say to Lazarus and to Mary and Martha, his sisters, I have the last word. But Jesus in resurrecting Lazarus, says to Mary and Martha and Lazarus and us, I have the last word. We may go through death, but we don't remain in death. Now, the challenge of that is that we can often allow ourselves to have a kind of triumphalist theology that says, well, don't worry, in the end, it will all be okay. In the end, it will all be okay. But it's okay for us to live with the uncertainties and the struggles and the heartbreaks between now and then. 
But the story of Lazarus' resurrection, the story of Christ's resurrection, the power of the general promise of resurrection reaches back into our presence from our futures and gives us hope and invites us to re-narrate our own stories. Let me give you an example of what that means in simple terms. Every day that I live is a day further away from when I lost my loved ones. That's one way of looking at that, isn't it? But the other way of looking at that is every day that I live is a day closer to reunion with them. I choose to change my perspective. I pray that these simple thoughts have helped you. I pray that they have somehow consoled you. I pray that if the book helps you, that it does so. Thank you for listening. Walk slowly with grief and pause often. Be kind to yourself and be kind to those around you. Lord, take these words and use them in the hearts of women and men. Amen. I'm going to invite Phil to come if there are any questions or comments or thoughts so that we can reflect together on them. I mean, Malcolm, thanks so much. There's so much in there to unpack and to, and to, to work through. Um, and I suppose from me listening, even just my personal perspective, I've, I've really appreciated, I suppose, hearing your own personal experience, um, just that authenticity of, of one who has walked that path. Um, there's one question came through on Facebook there um, just a few moments ago. I'd like to ask Malcolm if we're going to grieve our loved ones the rest of our lives on earth. I lost my mum three years ago and miss her and still miss her and dream about her and grieve terribly. I think the answer to that question is yes. But I don't think that I want you to understand that as a condemnation to a life of servitude to grief. I think, Phil, that um, when we define grief as a negative process, then the idea that we will spend the rest of our lives grieving can become like a prison sentence. But when we begin to see grief as a biblical expression of our vulnerability, when we see it as an expression of our love, of the people that we've lost, when we begin to see it as an expression of um, trusting God, that in our grieving God comes and encounters us, that in our grieving God can broaden our horizons, then the idea that you will grieve forever on earth um, can become so destructive that you couldn't go on. But when grief becomes something that God meets us in, then grief becomes a sphere of possibility. So to the lady or the man that's asked the question, I would say, yes, you will grieve them until you see them face to face, until you see Christ face to face. Mm. But the journey between this moment and that moment does not have to be a negative one. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be a dark and a frightening one. The American psychologist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in the 1970s was working in Chicago University and she did a whole series of work on grief. Of course, she was dealing with people who were dying. She wasn't dealing with the people who were left behind. Mm -hmm. And she identifies five stages of grief, which he later developed into six or seven. I don't think it's a particularly helpful model, 
because I think um, you can end up feeling as if you're trapped in this cycle and it's always going to be fear, despair, loss, anger, guilt, or whatever it might be. One of the cycle levels that she has is acceptance. And I'm not sure that I would use the word acceptance of grief or acceptance of loss because I think acceptance involves almost a sense of defeat for some people, surrender for some people. I think what she meant and what is more helpful is understanding that in responding to grief and accepting your loss, you are not defeated by it. Mm. You're saying, I need God's grace to get through it. I need to lean into something else. I can't change it, but that doesn't mean that I'm happy with it. When people think that they have to accept the loss of a loved one, they often hear you saying, you've got to accept this too. You've got to see it as a good thing. I don't think that, do you understand what I mean? They're not mm -hmm. the same thing at all. Yeah. And I prefer to talk to people um, in my own pastoral ministry and in wider contexts around grief and loss. In fact, there's a chapter in the book that talks about seasonal grief. I think for the lady or the man who says, am I going to grieve like this all the time? Think of your grief as four seasons, summer, winter, spring, and autumn. And in winter grief, our hard hearts feel as if they're immobile. We feel our loss very deeply. We feel it cold. Mm. We feel the isolation of it. But under the surface in winter, plants are putting down roots. They're being nourished and sustained, ready for another season. And in winter grief, God is doing something deeply in our souls that we don't necessarily understand at the time. I feel winter grief on, on anniversaries, mm -hmm. on birthdays, at Christmases, on Mother's Days, Father's Days, yeah. wedding days, when I marry my children, when something good happens in my life. At the same time as enjoying the goodness of it, I feel the winter of grief because I think there are people not here yeah. that should be. But then there is an autumn in grief when we can let go of those things that we no longer need. We perhaps take a look at the emblems and the pictures and the symbols and the icons that we've placed physically in our homes or in our lives or in our hearts and say, I can, I can release some of these. I don't need them anymore. Or in our own emotions, we can release some of those to God and we begin to see something different appearing just as leaves fall from trees. There's beauty in letting go. There's beauty in releasing our sorrow. There's beauty in handing over something. Recently, uh, my wife and I made a choice about giving away some of the things that my, one of my parents had given to me. And I never thought I would be able to do it. But actually there was a beauty in it because it felt as if I was, there was another layer of healing happening for me. Spring grief is when you see new things. When I look at my grandson who was born last March, and in one particular moment, I saw my mum's eyes in him. I thought, there's a connection. Mm -hmm. There's an ongoingness about this, which is healthy. And in spring grief, you can see traits in people. You can see uh, memories. You can see possibilities. You can see dreams. You can see passions. You can see hope in your own soul. You know, you might look at something that a year before would have broken your heart, but now it's changed. It's not breaking your heart. You're looking at it with a deep sense of satisfaction. And in summer grief, you enjoy the beauty of what you now have. Yeah. So grieving isn't a, it, it's how we see the grieving process, I think.
I hope that makes sense. I know that's a long mm. answer, but I, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you. And I think for, for folk that um, are thinking about what they do now, if they haven't got somebody to talk to, then, then, then find somebody who will listen to you rather than give you all the answers. There's a remarkable story about grief in the book of Job. Mm-hmm. In the first opening chapter, it says Job loses everything and is, um, is utterly devastated by it. His three friends become pretty useless friends, as you know. But there's a particular moment in the book of Job and his story where we are told that his three friends came to see him. And they saw him from afar off. And they saw his distress. Mm. And the scriptures say, and they sat with him for a week in silence. If you're walking with somebody through grief, if you're trying to help somebody, for goodness sake, be present to them. Even if what you say to them is, I don't know what to say. Even if what you say is, I can't change this and I don't have any answers. I just want to be with you. Being present to somebody going through grief is is a great help to the people that are going through it. One of the deepest challenges that I have is, perhaps because I'm a theologian, perhaps because I'm a pastor, but a number of people that I thought were my friends um, just weren't there. Just weren't there. They didn't pick up the phone. They didn't say, what can can we do to help? They didn't sit with me. Many of them, because of the tradition of the church that I'm in, I'm in the charismatic and Pentecostal tradition, um, didn't have a theology of suffering. So they saw all of the losses that I went through as a defeat. I don't. But I think their absence did me more, caused me more heartbreak than had they come and said the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. So perhaps one of the things that we can do with this session is also think about how we might help somebody else yeah. who's going through sorrow and loss and grief. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, that, that was going to be one of my other questions is, is how can we be a support to others who are going through that process. Um, and I suppose just to carry that thought a little bit further forward, particularly in light of, of what we have recently been through, you know, the, a lot of the stories in the news over the past year and a half uh, have been about how there have been families who have had to go through this process alone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even even the, the, the heartache of, of having a loved one who's had to go into hospital and you haven't been able to be there with them mm-hmm. at the end. Um, and I suppose in that, in that sense of isolation, um, what advice would you have for people who have maybe had to go through that process alone? And for us, who maybe now, as, as things are opening up a bit more, have a bit more freedom to, to physically engage with them. You know, we, obviously we've been able to call and video call, but uh, the, the physical mm-hmm. proximity coming back. I think that's a really good question. It's actually a really good question for local churches mm. and for pastors. Um, I know in my own pastoral ministry, um, we will offer and are offering services of thanksgiving for the person who has died mm-hmm. um, that they can return to, perhaps on an anniversary or on a birthday. Um, I have buried dozens of people through this season, a whole family in one situation, mm. um, who died within one week after each other, like dominoes. And the family that are left behind are asking these questions. I think listening, sitting with them and listening, creating space for them to talk is a very healthy thing. It has to be a very intentional thing because for some of them, they'll look back and say, 
it was so long ago now, it was 18 months ago, I don't know that I can go back, but actually they may, they may be masking some brokenness that needs to be surfaced because they're trying to be good or strong or get on with it or resilient or whatever you might want to say, but they actually need space to talk about that. Mm. I think support groups for that are helpful. Um, we are talking about ways that we might be able to join together groups of people who have gone through similar circumstances and how they could perhaps listen to each other's stories. Mm -hmm. There's a power in knowing that you haven't gone through something alone. Um, and we're also, as a church, and I as a pastor, I'm a public theologian, that's one of my disciplines. I'm asking, how do we create public spaces? We're, our church is not very far from the Ulster Hospital. Mm -hmm. How do we create a space for the staff of the Ulster Hospital mm -hmm. to come and express their loss? Yeah. Um, every year, in Dundonald, we, on the first Sunday of December, run something called a white Christmas service. It's at 3 p.m. and it's a space for anybody who has lost someone in the year before uh, to come as they approach Christmas weeks before it so that it's not too close. And we sing gentler songs and we have quieter reflection. And it's, it's celebratory, but not loud. It's, mm. not, it's not all the the hustle and the bustle of carol services. Mm -hmm. But we create a space that says, if you've lost someone, come write their name on a card, come light a candle and put it on a table, come uh, write their name on a decoration and hang it on a tree. Mm -hmm. And all the way through the Christmas season, somebody, we put a chair beside it, somebody from this church, every time this building is open, will be sitting in that chair and praying for you. Mm -hmm. And we will simply walk with you through this season but giving people space to name their loved one, mm -hmm. to talk about them, to talk about the disappointment, yeah. um, is probably the best thing that we can do for those that are living with the isolation of it all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that, I suppose that talking and that verbalizing, you know, oft, often I suppose part of the fear of, of those of us with friends who have lost, or, or with other family who have lost someone significant, the, there can be a fear of not wanting, you know, do we, do we bring it up? Um, whereas... you, you don't want to upset the person. Yeah. You think if I, if, I mention, if I mention Steve or Mary or Joan or Sinead or uh, Patrick, will I be upsetting that mm -hmm. person? You'll find that you, you won't. And if they cry, they may not be crying because they're upset. Mm -hmm. They may be crying because they're relieved that somebody has remembered that they existed. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, because the, it's not like the person themselves has forgotten in any way. No, yeah. and they never will. They never yeah. will. There's a wonderful poem by, um, called Midsummer Break, I don't know if you're familiar with it, by Seamus Heaney, in which he talks about being at school when he hears about the death of his little brother who was hit by a milk float in Bilahi. Mm -hmm. And he goes to see him, and the house is silent and hushed and women crying in a corner and men consoling each other over whiskies as Irish Catholic funerals and Protestant funerals can often be. Um, and he says that he, he, he went up to see his brother lying in the coffin. And uh, the stillness of that moment was very powerful to him. Christopher, his brother's name was. And he talks about seeing him lying there and wanting memory to be part of the rest of his life. Mm. Wanting to be able to talk about his brother, wanting to be able to identify that he had a brother. Mm -hmm. My eldest brother died on March the 8th. He collapsed on March the 8th in 2016. And he died on March the 9th. Mm -hmm. His name was Colin. He was my brother. So I will use his name. I saw his daughter, my niece, just last weekend and spent 20 minutes talking about him. Mm -hmm. And she was so relieved and I was so relieved. And we cried and we laughed. And he was a pain. Mm -hmm. 
You know, we beatify the dead. <laughs> we make them sound as if they're porcelain saints. He was a pain in the neck. Mm -hmm. But just being able to mention him mm -hmm. makes a difference. Being able to, some people will be worried, is he okay after doing a seminar, which is such a difficult seminar? Mm -hmm. um, yes, I'm okay, because I, I, I get, I, I think the other thing I would say about grief, um, Phil, is um, I am not, I, I, don't th I don't think I'm ever going to be healed from grief. Mm. I think grief is a process through which God brings restoration to my soul. So when I talk about my loved ones, and I don't talk about them every day, I'm not obsessed with them, mm -hmm. but I talk about them a lot. Mm -hmm. When I do that, it's like another layer of the onion of my uncertainty and my questions and my fe fear and my loss is peeled back. And God says, I'm going to do something else in you. I'm going to bring you into another season. Yeah. So for me, understanding that the journey of grief and loss is a process, not an event, mm -hmm. has liberated me from having to be okay. It's okay not to be okay. And it's okay to have questions and it's okay to feel the loss of our loved ones intensely. God is okay with that. It's the church that often isn't in society, mm -hmm. but God is okay with our vulnerability. And actually I think as leaders, if we could express that vulnerability a bit more, not just about loss and grief, but about life, mm. I think the people that we are leading might listen to us a bit more closely because they'll realise, oh, they have struggles too. Yeah, yeah, it's very much in in our weakness. He is strong, mm -hmm. and it's it's I suppose it's, it's it's the honesty of of being able to display that and, and show that. Mm -hmm. um, thank you. I, I don't know if there's anything else you want to, no, not at all. to say to, not at to all. finish off. Well. In that case, um, I think we're, we're going to pray just to, to close off the seminar here. Um, pray and give, give thanks for what Malcolm has shared and pray for any of us, uh, any of you who are watching either live or, or the recorded version. If you're walking through this process yourselves, um, we'll pray for you. Uh, and I'm sure Malcolm would be happy, you know, if, if, if there is anybody who has any questions that we maybe haven't been able to get to or, or haven't seen before I came up here, um, please do continue to comment, and I'm sure Malcolm would be happy to, to come back to you. Afterwards. I'm very happy to do that. Let's pray, folks. Father God, we, we come before you uh, and acknowledge, Lord, and, and, and know that you know the, the pain of loss, you know the pain of grief. You know the pain that, that those of us who, who have endured this and been through this, you know what we walk with. Father, you who sent your son to this earth to teach us and to guide us and indeed to, to die, to walk through death and to rise victorious. Father, we we thank you that this is not something we have to go through alone. We thank you that, as Malcolm had shared, that even in the darkness and uncertainty there, we can find deeper experience and encounter and conversation with you. Father, we thank you for, for the grace and the wisdom that you've, you've given to Malcolm to be able to share with us today. We thank you for the journey that you're continuing to bring him on and continuing to bring him through. And Father, for any who are watching, either live or recorded, who are, are struggling now with this, who are on any part of the stage of this journey, we pray peace. We pray for comfort. We pray for your spirit to be known by them.
for them to know, Lord, that in all of their grief, you walk with them. You want to embrace them. And Father, I pray for the rest of us, you would help us to be present with those who are suffering, to be present with those who are grieving, even if it is to be present and be silent. That as a community of your people, we would seek to be present with people, to love them, to care for them, to be what support we can be. Father, all of these things, all of the encouragements, all of the unanswered questions, all of the pain, Father, all of it we bring and we lay at your feet. And we trust again, as Malcolm said, we trust you in the questions. And we thank you. We thank you for your son, for your spirit with us. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Malcolm. Thank you for listening to this talk. If you would like to know more about New Horizon, please visit our website at newhorizon.org.uk.